Good morning, church. It's great we can gather here as a family. It's great to see everyone here as we uh, hear God's Word and we worship Him together. And we're starting a new series today in the book of Deuteronomy. It's not a book that you probably just read for fun in your quiet time or anything like that, but I'm really excited to get into this book because the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most important books of the entire Bible. Did you know that? One of the most important books. It's foundational. Uh, It's foundational in the theology of the Old Testament because it controls the understanding of the rest of Israel's history. It's uh, foundational in feeding the message of the prophets that come later on in uh, the history of Israel. Um, It's also the book that Jesus Christ uses. He uses it in the face of attack by the devil uh, to fight the devil off in the midst of his temptations. The Apostle Paul uses this book to uh, shape his understanding of what uh, it means to be God's people and God's plan for the, uh, the nations. This book is foundational. And in this book, we're going to ex- explore the theme of the good life. What does it mean to live the good life under God? And why is that significant to us? This is a vital book, friends. So I'm excited to get into it. I hope that you are as well. This is a vital book. So let's get into it. I want to start by making a little confession to you, though. It's not something that, um, not something I'm proud of, but sometimes I read trashy celebrity gossip uh, online. You know those articles that come up, and uh, they come up on my Facebook feed, I might see them on my news app, and they're just like stupid articles, but I just feel drawn to read them. Uh, for example, uh, in the past week or so, or maybe two weeks, I saw these articles, it was about, one was about Guy Sebastian in his uh, mansion, in Marubra, and his neighbors complaining it was too big, something like that. And the other was about Liam Hemsworth, uh, who plays Thor, if you don't know. So Liam Hemsworth and his new mansion. Yeah, down at, oh, is it? No, Chris. I could see the murmurs, all the, all the oh, no, it's not right. Chris Hemsworth, yeah, uh, same thing. <laughs> and his new mansion down in Byron Bay or something like that, he's got a new mansion. Yeah, Lydia's giving me the okay, must be true. And I don't know why, I'm drawn to read these stories. You know, I want to click those stories, I want to see how nice their house is, I want to see how much money they spend on their house, how many millions of dollars their house is, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's me living vicariously through the life of celebrities, um, but maybe deep down if I think about it, maybe it's because that's uh, what I, would, I wish I had. I want to be Chris Hemsworth too. You know, I, I want that sort of stuff because... Um, to have that sort of life, you know, is the good life, isn't it? For most of us, as we think about the good life and what it is for us, what it means for us, um, it's about enjoyment. It's about joy. It's about satisfaction. It's about fulfillment. But the question is, where do you find those things? Uh, for most of us, we find those things in the things of this world, in things like a nice house, which is awesome to have. Like, you, you look at those things in a, in a nice car, or in fulfilling relationships, in a stable family that loves each other, in a successful career, in respect, whatever it may be, we, we, we seek the good life in finding satisfaction in these things in this world. If you're not a Christian here today, then I would imagine that God probably isn't a big part of the equation for the good life for you, is it? In fact, he's, the absence of God is actually the important thing in what makes a good life. Because when you think about the good life, 
I don't, I don't need somebody telling me what to do. I don't need somebody telling me what's right and wrong. I don't need rules imposed on me. I, I want to be able to define things my own way. I want to find joy my own way. I want to find happiness my own way. I wonder if that's how you're thinking here today. Many of us think like that. I would say even the Christians here today, we're not so different. Because whilst we might talk about God and about Jesus, and maybe in our conversations that we were having before, that, that, that was part of the conversation, but if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, how central is God to our vision of what the good life is? Is he, is he central to what it means to live a good life? Or is he just sort of on the side over here so that when we have the good things that the rest of the world has, we can just say, oh, this is God's blessing for me. And we can go on living guilt-free. Is God just a functional part of the good life for you? To tick off your blessings, or is he at the center of what it means to live a good life? Friends, the question we all have to ask ourselves is this. Can we have the good life without God? Can we have the good life without God? That's a question we'll be exploring throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy as we look at God's vision of the good life, but especially today we'll be looking to answer that as we start thinking about the God of the good life. And we're going to be looking at the following points. We're going to see the God of the good life, that He's the faithful God, that He's the powerful God. Then we're going to look at a faithless people, and lastly, to trust God. Okay, so that's just a bit of an outline of where we're headed today. As we start the series, uh, we need to really set the scene for what's going on. And open up your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 to 5. And this just gives you a framework for how to understand the book. Really important as we start the series. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophil, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from, to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the fourth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and at Idre, and defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, east of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab. Moses began to expound, began to expound this law, saying, So Deuteronomy is a book that records Several sermons, okay? So this is a book of sermons, of speeches given by the prophet Moses. And where are they? Here's a little map to give you an idea of where they are. Um, And he's speaking to the Israelites as they are encamped east of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab. So you can see Moab, that region there. Um, That's where they're waiting. And they are here because they're just about to enter the land of Canaan. You can see Canaan on the map there. And what Canaan is, Canaan is the promised land. This is the land that they've been journeying towards for decades, actually, after God's liberated from slavery to Egypt. This is where they've been headed for 40 years. They've been waiting for this moment to actually go into this amazing promised land. So what will Moses say to them? Well, Deuteronomy 1 verse 5 says this, East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying... This is what the book is about. The rest of the book is about. It's about an exposition of the law. Moses expounding the law, explaining the law, explaining uh, the Torah. That's what the word actually is, which is God's instruction. 
And this is not just some cold, impersonal list of do's and do nots. Here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. This is a picture of God's vision for God's people in God's place. And this is what God sees as the good life for his people. And this is what Moses is impressing on the hearts of the people that come back to God, love him, be loyal to him as you live in this new land, because that is a good life for you. This book is about what it means to live as God's community, God's people. It's about what it means to live God's way. And as we begin this journey in chapters 1 to 3, we hear Moses recounting a history of Israel. So we just had one chapter of it before. But let me give you just a really quick overview of this history before we get a bit deeper into the book. Uh, It begins at Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's referred to in this book. And Mount Sinai, uh, what's happened... Uh, previous to this is that the Israelites have been freed from slavery to Egypt, so they were slaves to Egypt, they were liberated by uh, God to come out of that nation, and they've been traveling, 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 and they go to Mount Sinai, and it's there that Moses receives a law from God, holy instructions to govern the life of God's people, and you can see Mount Sinai on the map there. Then after that, God tells people to travel to the land of Canaan, a land he's promised to give to them, and people go and they get to the southern border of the land, uh, which is at Kadesh Barnea, if you see that. So that's the southern border of the land of Canaan, and that just took 11 days to get there, so they're on the border, and what actually happens next is that um, they're just about to go in, but the people, they say to Moses, can we send some spies into the land? We just want to check out the land to see what it's like. And Moses thinks this is a good idea, so they send some spies into the land, and the spies come back with this report. They say, this land is amazing. This land is abundant, it's blessed, it's, the description is overflowing with milk and honey. Now, I'm not sure what that looks like, but that, that's, it's a good thing. You know, it's a picture of abundance. Uh, this is a beautiful land. But they also bring back another aspect of the report. There, there's gigantic warriors in this land, and we're scared to go in. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. And at that point, the people, they don't trust God, but they actually refuse to go in. They refuse to go in. So God punishes them for this disobedience. After all he's done for them, they just reject him and refuse him. So God punishes them. And you'll see on the map there, Kadesh Barnea, but what happens? Uh, They turn around. They're turned around. And that 11-day journey turns into a 40-year journeying around in the wilderness, lost until that entire generation of faithless people die. And after 38 years, um, they're coming up to the edge of the promised land again. You can see up on the map. Uh, They're coming up. uh, They're going through Moab then, the plains of Moab. um, And God says to Moses, go. You can start going in again. This is the second try. I'm giving you another chance. So he's bringing the people in. Uh, You'll see later on in in chapters 2 and 3, they meet enemies along the way. God defeats the enemies for them. And they're right at the edge of the promised land. They're right at the edge. They're just about to go in. And this is the setting for the book of Deuteronomy. This is where they are now. You can imagine Moses standing before the people. They're camped out in the plains of Moab. They're waiting, preparing to go in, and he's giving them the final instructions. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know before you go into the land. That's the snapshot of the history of Israel to bring us to this point. Um, Also at the end of those chapters, just to let you know, uh, that Moses, 
Unfortunately, he doesn't get to go into the land because he was rebellious too. And he passes on his leadership to Joshua, who will be the next leader to take them into the promised land. That's what we see at the end of chapter 3. That's the history of Israel, a bit of a mixed history there, a bit of a sad history in a sense. But we see they're about to enter the promised land. But what do we learn from these chapters as we look at the history of Israel? Well, we're to learn from their history. And the first lesson we're to learn is that God is a faithful God. As God tells Israel to leave Sinai and go to the land, um, here's what he actually says in Deuteronomy 1 verse 8. See, I've given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he will give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. And God is giving this land to the Israelites, but you'll see the basis of why he's giving this land to them is this. It's his promise. It's God's promise, right? The promise that he made to the the fathers of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants after them. The promise of God is driving forward the plans of God. That's what we need to understand, first of all. And this promise is a promise that goes back to one man called Abraham, the founding father of the nation of Israel. And in Genesis, um, sorry, I should say Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. Um, This is the verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Over two centuries ago, God made these promises to the man Abraham, but he hasn't given up on them because they're coming to fruition right now. Promises of a land a people and blessing, promises of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. These are all coming to fulfillment here. Because you'll see at this point, Israel are a massive nation. The people have grown. God, uh, Moses has to appoint leaders, judges to judge them. They're on the, the border of the promised land. They're just about to go in. And that blessing under God's rule, well, that's just waiting for them in the land. They're almost there. God's promise drives forward this plan. And what God has said will happen. God's promises never fail. When God says something, friends, we have to understand that He is faithful to His Word, that He makes it happen, that He never backs out, that he, he, He's faithful to His promise. I think that's hard for us to comprehend because that's so different from us, isn't it? Our word is so, so fickle and so meaningless. Um, I think that's gotten really bad with the advent of mobile phones. So I don't know if uh, you're here today and you remember when mobile phones actually were invented and came into play. Is there people that, yeah, yeah, there's people here that remember that. So before mobile phones, you know what you had to do? When you made appointments with people, you actually had to keep them. When you said you had to be somewhere at 12 o'clock, you had to be there at 12 o'clock because they didn't know where you were if you weren't there. You know, you just had to be there. But now, you couldn't just text someone and say, hey, I'm going to be 15 minutes late, which means you're going to be half an hour late, or whatever it is. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that sort of thing. You had to keep your word. Uh, but I think, in one sense, it's not the mobile phone's fault because it's a human problem, isn't it? We're not very good at keeping our word. We don't, we're not faithful to our word. Even the most significant words that we say to each other, aren't necessarily meaningful. You think about marriage vows. 
what an enormous promise we make to each other, but how many broken marriages stand around us. Friends, our words, we, we often, we, we can't keep. We, we just don't do it. But this is not like our God. This is not like our God. Our God is faithful to His Word. When He says something, He will do it. He will keep His Word. He will make it happen because this is God. This is God we're talking about. In Deuteronomy 1, we see the account of a people being brought up to the land because it's driven by God's promise. And then we see the people rejecting God's promise. And at this point, um, you might think God holds out this gift of the land and they slap away his hand like insolent children. No, we don't want that. And at this point, if it was us, we might say, okay, we tried. You know, we, we tried our best. We gave the promise. They didn't want it. I was faithful to my word, but they didn't do their bit. So that's it. It's over. Um, and I think if God did that, he would be justified. He would have every right to do that. But that's not what God does. Because he's faithful to his word. And he keeps coming. And he keeps fulfilling the promise. He keeps driving forward his plan. He keeps giving them another chance. Aren't you thankful that our God isn't like us? That he is faithful to his word. That he keeps his promises. That he will never, never fail. What he says will happen. This is the truth that drives forward not only the book of Deuteronomy, but every bit of history in this world, every piece of biblical history, every, everything that's happening is driven forward by God's promise. But he's not only faithful to his promises, he's powerful enough to keep them. And that's our second point, the powerful God. When Israel refuses to enter the land the first time, uh, when God tells them to go and they refuse, here's their objection in verse 28. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Now, this is, in one sense, a legitimate objection. If you're just about to take a land and you saw gigantic warriors in the land, then maybe it would be a good reason to back off a little bit. There's a fearsome, powerful enemy in the land. But look at the response that Moses gives them in verse 29 to 30. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. And what Moses is saying is this, that your enemy is strong but God is stronger. This is God. This is your God, the powerful God who liberated you from the greatest superpower of the time, the nation of Egypt, and did that with miraculous signs and wonders that the world has never seen before. This is your God who did that with ease, who brought you out of slavery, who's guided you in the wilderness, who's never let you go, who's, who's carried you on, on his back like a father carries their son. This God is powerful. Your God is powerful. No one can stand against Him. And friends, we see this power in action as Israel prepares for their second attempt to enter the land too. So later on, Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we see Israel going back for their second attempt and we see God's power in action because every enemy in God's way is crushed. Every enemy Deuteronomy 2, 31, um, says this. 
The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. Now, friends, this language is all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, but do you, do you see something? Do you see who's in control? Do you see who's in control? God. God is the one in control. These nations have no hope of standing because God has decided to deliver this enemy king into the hand of the Israelites. And when God decides that will happen, it happens because he is powerful to make it happen. They cannot stand against God. In the same story with, um, as they, the Israelites continue, there's another enemy king. He's called Og, the king of Bashan. And do you know what the Bible describes him as saying in, in Deuteronomy? It says um, that he had, he had a bed decorated with iron which was four meters long and 1.8 meters wide. So get that in your heads. Four meters long and 1.8 meters. So the bed was like a lot wider than me and double my length. That's how big these people were that they were about to fight. A fearsome enemy, but look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him. For I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. And once again, God delivers the enemy into Israel's hands. And even the strongest, most powerful enemies are defeated utterly before God. Because God is powerful. God is powerful and no one can hope to stand against him. This is God we're talking about. This is the God who spoke creation into existence with just a word. This is a God who is able to do anything. This is the God of the universe. Who can hope to stand against him? His enemies cannot. Our God is the powerful God, which means he's able to do what he says. And this is so important because when you think about it, promises, they're useless. They're absolutely useless if you don't have the power to keep them. Is that true? Um, I'm, a, I'm a parent, as most of you will know, and um, my kids often ask me for things, and they always, they're always asking for things. If you're a parent, you know that's what happens. Kids just always asking for things. And as a parent, you want to give them the best, right? So you want to say yes as much as possible, but sometimes you just can't because they ask for things you can't do. Um, I've got a friend, and she's got a... Uh, she, her child one day asked her this. Uh, she said, he said to her, Mommy, uh, I like the sun. Can we buy the sun? Now, as a parent, you want to do what's good for your kids. You want to give them good things. But, you know, she couldn't say yes to that, right? Because she couldn't keep her promise. She's, she's not able to do that. She doesn't have the power to do that sort of thing. Uh, she, can't, she can't make that promise in good faith that she'd be able to keep it. Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous example, but friends, even for our promises and our words we say to each other each and every day, um, how hard is, is it to keep our promises? Because sometimes we just don't have the power to do that. We might do everything that's in our power to keep our words. If we say something as simple as, I'll always be there for you. Can you really promise that? Maybe you'll do whatever it takes 
for you to do that, but what, what circumstances will you come into? What, what will the rest of life throw at you? We don't know because we're not powerful enough to control those things. But this is not like our God. Because nothing is impossible for our God. Because He's the God of all power and all authority and He's sovereign. He's in control of every single aspect of life, of what goes on in this world. He's in control of history. He's powerful and what He says will happen will happen because He can make it happen. Because He is God. Friends, do you understand who our God is? He's the powerful God. The one and only powerful God. He's able to make whatever He wants happen. Israel knows this, but they don't trust Him. Or our point three, a faithless people. Before their first entry attempt, God promises He'll give the people the land. He promised He'll defeat their enemies. He had shown them already how powerful He is by defeating Egypt before them. But look at what they're like. Deuteronomy 1, verse 26. Moses talking to the people. But you were unwilling to go up You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. And in verse 32, Moses says this to the Israelites, You did not trust in the Lord your God. Despite who God is, despite who they know God to be the Israelites, they they rebel against God. They complain to God. They whine to God like a bunch of whiny children. And they don't trust Him. They don't trust Him. And when they reject Him and they try to get away from God, uh, they're without God. But here's the thing, there's no hope without God. God declares His judgment on the people. And what happens next is that uh, they, they say, oh, oops, okay, sorry, we'll try again, God, we'll come back now, we'll go into the land. But God actually says this to Moses, he says, don't go into the land because these people have been rebellious and I will not be with them now. But the people, they don't listen, they go, no, we'll try, we're going to give it a go. And they try and get into the land and they get utterly defeated by their enemies, utterly defeated. Why? Because God is not with them. They did not trust him. Moses recounts the mistakes of this previous generation of Israelites to the current generation standing before him with this purpose. He wants them to know the mistakes of their ancestors and not to do them. Do not repeat the mistakes of your ancestors. And you know what, friends? That's exactly the same purpose that this book is recorded here for us so long afterwards. As we look at the people of Israel, as we look at the example, do not repeat the mistake of our ancestors. Do not make the same mistakes. Do not reject God. Because a life without God is a life without good. A life without God is a life without good. If there's one thing you take away, get that into your heads. That's what we have to understand. For most of us here, 
I would propose that things are pretty good. You know, our lives might not be perfect, but we're doing relatively okay. Uh, things are pretty comfortable in our lives. Um, we, you know, we're, we're not struggling too much, um, and we're pretty capable people as well. Like we can sort of manage our own lives and our own way, which makes us think sometimes that you know we can do everything by our own. You know, why, why do I? Why should I rely on God? Why do I? Why do I need to trust in God when I've got all these things all together? Why do I need anyone else except for me? That's often how we can think. But friends, let me tell you why. Because this life that we see here, this life that we live here in this world, this life we live right now is not all there is. It's not all there is. Who knows what will happen to any one of our lives at any moment. It's like a vapor in the wind, like mist in the air. It could be, it's, it's the good things of this world, they're here today and gone tomorrow, or they're here today and they're gone today. Who knows what will happen? But here's something that I do know. This life is not all there is. Eternity awaits. Eternity awaits. In this section of Deuteronomy, we see the Israelites, um, and we see that before them was a promised land filled with blessings that was available to them. This amazing promised land. We're going to see more of that in the rest of Deuteronomy. But um, we have something much better. Because we have a heavenly promised land. We have an eternal home. We have perfect joy waiting for us. We have that available for us, before us. That's what we have to understand, friends. This land this amazing promise, this inheritance that God has available, it's waiting. But like the Israelites, we can't do this on our own. We can't get to this land on our own. We can't do this without God because there's a powerful enemy that opposes us. For the Israelites, it was physical as they fought those battles. For us, it's spiritual. The devil and his forces, they stand before us and each day they, they strike us down with sin. They beat us back to keep us from getting to this amazing heavenly land. And the devil, the father of lies, he uses lies to deceive us, to tell us, you have everything you already need. This is the good life. You don't need anything more. This is, this is all there is. You don't need God. And why would you want to trust that God anyway? Look at the bad stuff that's happening in your life. He's not a trustworthy God. He's not a faithful God. He's not a powerful God. You don't need to trust God. You don't need anyone else. That's what the devil tells us. You don't need anyone else because you can be God. And we buy into this lie, don't we, friends, when you think about how we live day by day. We reject God and we depend on ourselves. We don't trust God. We, we live our lives without Him. But when we live our lives without Him here in this life, it means we live eternity without Him. And a life without God is a life without good. Because it is from God that every joy and every blessing and every happiness spring forth. 
because he is the God who created these things. Friends, a life without God is a life without good. Don't be deceived. And here's the call for each and every one of us today. It's to trust God. Trust God. While we are faithless, our God is faithful. And our God is powerful. And our God cares. And He's got a promise that He will fulfill. And, he'll sh- and he, shows us, he shows us this by stepping into this world to make it happen. Stepping into this world as a man, Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says in John 6, verse 40. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. Friends, remember, God doesn't give up on His promise, despite how faithless and how sinful we are. And He has paid the ultimate price to make that happen. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus comes as a man to die on that cross to pay the price for our sins, our, our rejection of God, our distrust of God, our dependence on self. And Jesus wipes that away. He pays that price so we can be forgiven. And Jesus rises again in powerful victory as a declaration that the enemy has been defeated, that the greatest weapons of the enemy, the sin and death, that, that, that power is broken and that Jesus Christ has opened up a new way and eternal life is available for all who trust in Him. See, we have a God who is faithful, a God who is powerful, a God who doesn't give up on us despite how much we give up on Him and who guarantees our entry into the heavenly promised land because He fights for us. He fights for us. And no one can defeat our God. Christian brothers and sisters, I would ask you to take comfort in this. Take comfort in this. Because our lives, there's so many challenges that are thrown our way. You might be here today and you are struggling, whether that's physically, whether that's mentally, whether that's spiritually, and you're, you're, you're feeling almost like giving up. But take heart in knowing that our God is on your side. If you trust in Jesus, He will never leave you. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ has secured your heavenly home, that He's secured your entry into this promised land of abundance and blessing that will extend into eternity, and that far surpasses anything you could imagine in this world. Take heart in this, knowing that nothing can bring you away from that, because if God is for us, who can be against us? This is our God we're talking about. Take comfort in this and keep trusting in Jesus. And for all of us, Christian or not here today, that's the call. Trust in Jesus and keep trusting in Jesus because in Him we see the power and the faithfulness of God and we see the promise fulfilled that we have an eternal, heavenly home, a perfect land of rest, a promised land available for us. And it is good, very good. Friends, this life is available for all who trust in the promises of our God.
our faithful, our powerful God. What a privilege that we can have this promise. Will you trust in him? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are faithful God, that you are powerful God, and you have given us these amazing promises, a promise to your people so long ago, but a promise fulfilled in us today as we trust in Jesus and we have the hope of that eternal promised land, that heavenly hope that waits for us. But friends, uh, but God, please help us as a church to, um, to turn away from our faithlessness of our rejection of God and to turn back to Him. May you humble our hearts. May we trust in Jesus Christ. May we pray all these things for His name's sake. Amen.